Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Alright, good morning. It's nice to be back on this Tuesday, the 26th day of April. All the news and your views from the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. We're live on Starter FM and of course the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio streaming platforms. It's great to have your company. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your long weekend. That's the second we've had in a row. I think we might get a full weekend next week as we kickstart a brand new month. Uh, kids go back to school a little later this week as well, and I think everything returns to normal. Look, I'm sure yesterday you took time to reflect, and lest we forget, uh, Anzac Day, always such a special, sombre day on the Australian calendar. I think it's, it's one of, along with Remembrance Day, one of our most important days on the nation's calendar. And I'm sure yesterday, if you weren't a part of a, uh, a service, uh, you reflected in your own way. Maybe you went out, maybe you played tour. Maybe you shouted a veteran, a skewy. Anyway, thank you to those who have served. Thank you to those, of course, who have given the ultimate sacrifice being their lives. And thank you to those who continue to serve and provide us uh, with a platform like this and a democracy and the freedom that we enjoy here in Australia. Okay, well, it's been plenty happening, absolutely. Uh, the last time we caught up, and I'm sorry I had to take a few days off, we're getting a, a little dental work to try and get the uh, the old teeth up to scratch <laughs> ahead of the upcoming nuptials a little later this year. I was having some dental work, and I, I put it off for many years, uh, mainly because it's so damn expensive. Uh, anyway, um, but yeah, so I've had some work done and I I couldn't speak properly late last week and I didn't want to be slurring throughout the whole show. So anyway, back to normal this week. Plenty of news to talk about. Uh, last time we, we spoke um, was the day of the first leaders debate. I watched it, you watched it and many of you commented on my Facebook page. I think we uh, we all agreed that both the Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Opposition Leader Anthony Albanese made some very good points, and I, I didn't I don't didn't actually even though it was a Sky News thing I didn't mind the forum. I thought it was pretty fair. I thought it was fairly balanced, and I thought Albo uh, won, as did obviously the undecided voters who were there a part of the uh, the audience, but not by much, not by much. Uh, he did make a, a bit of a, a muck-up on a couple of issues, um, but then again, he was strong on others, and likewise for Scott Morrison. Anyway, we are now, uh, what, less than a month away from the federal election and two weeks away from pre-polling. So I'll go through some of the latest stories, uh, what happened over the weekend in relation to the federal election campaign. Um, also want to talk about the streaming services. Netflix are in a world of trouble. Yes, they are. Uh, so we've got that on the way for you. Some other stories. We'll check the uh, the latest weather. 
and we'll also keep an eye on today's news as well. Thanks to our friends at Air News. So, some great tunes to keep you company. Let's get into it. On this Tuesday, it is the 26th day of April. Marcus Paul in the morning. Tuesday morning, nice to have your company, Marcus Paul in the morning on Starter FM and, of course, the iHeart and TuneIn radio platforms and, of course, the Prawncast. Well, Defence Minister Peter Dutton has sounded the alarm, making an extraordinary claim that Australians should be prepared for war. Now, I thought this yesterday was nothing short of disgraceful alarmism and scaremongering on what was Australia's most sacred day, Anzac Day. Has this man no shame? Prepare for war, warns Peter Dutton. Now, I have to say, it's not just Mr Dutton who was spruiking war or beating the drums of war. It started from the Prime Minister. He, at a a dawn service yesterday, warned of a new arc of autocracy from Beijing to Moscow. Now, the Prime Minister said that he'd drawn a red line, whatever the hell that is, and would not hesitate to join allies to keep China off Australia's doorstep following a controversial security pact between Beijing and the Solomon Islands. Now, speaking on television, Mr Dutton issued a frank assessment of the situation, encouraging Australians to accept the reality of our time, quote-unquote. We shouldn't take for granted the sacrifice that was made by the Anzacs. We have to be realistic that people like Hitler and others aren't just a figment of our imagination or that they're consigned to history. We have, in President Putin at the moment, somebody who is willing to kill women and children. That's happening in the year 2022. And he warned China was on a very deliberate course. And the only way to preserve peace is to prepare for war and be strong as a country. Well, that's provocative, but Dutton's pushed back on that. We're in a period, he said, very similar to the 1930s now, and I think there were a lot of people in the 1930s who wished they had spoken up much earlier in the decade. Presented with Mr Dutton's comments at a short press conference in Darwin, Labor leader Richard Miles claimed the Defence Minister was all words and no action. That's what uh, Labor's had to say. Now, he said, we are at the moment in our history where our strategic circumstances are as complex as many points since the Second World War. Hitting out at the government's record, Mr Miles pointed out to the dumping of a French submarine contract in favour of UK and US-designed nuclear-powered vessels, which aren't expected to arrive until 2040. We certainly need to prepare, but we have not seen the preparation under this government. This is a government which repeatedly fails, said Richard Miles. Now, it sounds to me like they're, they're all playing politics with war on Anzac Day. Now, asked if he was concerned about China crossing the Prime Minister's red line, the Labor leader said a military base in the Pacific would dramatically change the framework of Australia's national security. That we find ourselves asking these questions at this moment says everything about the failure of Scott Morrison in his managing of the relationships in the Pacific and specifically Scott Morrison's failure to manage the relationship with the Solomon Islands. Now, both Mr Morrison and opposition leader Anthony Albanese linked the war in Ukraine to the Anzac spirit uh, on this 
particular day as we honour those who fought for our liberty and our freedom, we stand with the people of Ukraine who do the same thing at this very moment, said the Prime Minister. Now, he and Labor Deputy Leader Richard Miles attended a dawn service in Darwin as the nation marked the 80th year anniversary of the city's bombing. Despite a brief pause to mark Anzac Day, it's expected that national security will remain a key issue as leaders resume their campaigns this week. Well, what did you make of it? Plenty of you commenting on the Facebook page. I thought it was just a little beyond the pale, but I mean, that's my viewpoint. You might agree or disagree. But senior politicians stepping up the rhetoric, you know, saying Australia should be prepared for war. I just wonder whether this is a an election ploy or whether it goes a little too far in the provocative nature of the comments. Mind you, of course, we are in the midst of a federal election campaign. Tuesday morning, nice to have your company, Marcus Paul in the morning on Starter FM and, of course, the iHeart and TuneIn radio platforms and, of course, the Prawncast. Well, Defence Minister Peter Dutton has sounded the alarm, making an extraordinary claim that Australians should be prepared for war. Now, I thought this yesterday was nothing short of disgraceful alarmism and scaremongering on what was Australia's most sacred day, Anzac Day. Has this man no shame? Prepare for war, warns Peter Dutton. Now, I have to say, it's not just Mr Dutton who was spruiking war or beating the drums of war. It started from the Prime Minister. He, at a, a dawn service yesterday, warned of a new arc of autocracy from Beijing to Moscow. Now, the Prime Minister said that he'd drawn a red line, whatever the hell that is, and would not hesitate to join allies to keep China off Australia's doorstep following a controversial security pact between Beijing and the Solomon Islands. Now, speaking on television, Mr Dutton issued a frank assessment of the situation, encouraging Australians to accept the reality of our time, quote-unquote. We shouldn't take for granted the sacrifice that was made by the Anzacs. We have to be realistic that people like Hitler and others aren't just a figment of our imagination or that they're consigned to history. We have, in President Putin at the moment, somebody who is willing to kill women and children. That's happening in the year 2022. And he warned China was on a very deliberate course. And the only way to preserve peace is to prepare for war and be strong as a country. Well, that's provocative. But Dutton's pushed back on that. We're in a period, he said, very similar to the 1930s now, and I think there were a lot of people in the 1930s who wished they had spoken up much earlier in the decade. Presented with Mr Dutton's comments at a short press conference in Darwin, Labor leader Richard Miles claimed the Defence Minister was all words and no action. That's what uh, Labor's had to say. Now, he said, we are at the moment in our history where our strategic circumstances are as complex as many points since the Second World War. Hitting out at the government's record, Mr Miles pointed out to the dumping of a French submarine contract in favour of UK and US-designed nuclear-powered vessels, which aren't expected to arrive until 2040. 
We certainly need to prepare, but we have not seen the preparation under this government. This is a government which repeatedly fails, said Richard Miles. Now, it sounds to me like they're, they're all playing politics with war on Anzac Day. Now, asked if he was concerned about China crossing the Prime Minister's red line, the Labor leader said a military base in the Pacific would dramatically change the framework of Australia's national security. That we find ourselves asking these questions at this moment says everything about the failure of Scott Morrison in his managing of the relationships in the Pacific and specifically Scott Morrison's failure to manage the relationship with the Solomon Islands. Now, both Mr Morrison and opposition leader Anthony Albanese linked the war in Ukraine to the Anzac spirit. Uh, On this particular day, as we honour those who fought for our liberty and our freedom, we stand with the people of Ukraine who do the same thing at this very moment, said the Prime Minister. Now, he and Labor Deputy Leader Richard Miles attended a dawn service in Darwin as the nation marked the 80th year anniversary of the city's bombing. Despite a brief pause to mark Anzac Day, it's expected that national security will remain a key issue as leaders resume their campaigns this week. Well, what did you make of it? Plenty of you commenting on the Facebook page. I thought it was just a little beyond the pale, but I mean, that's my viewpoint. You might agree or disagree. But senior politicians stepping up the rhetoric, you know, saying Australia should be prepared for war, I just wonder whether this is a an election ploy or whether it goes a little too far in the provocative nature of the comments. Mind you, of course, we are in the midst of a federal election campaign. Gentlemen, this is, this is, is Democracy Manifest. So just how much is being spent on the election promises? At least $23 billion, according to the coalition. That's their sweetener for voters to choose them on the 21st of next month. The coalition has promised $833 million a day to the electorates around the country since the week of March 29's federal budget as it goes on a spending spree to hold on to power at next month's election. From large-scale dams that have yet to be judged against a business case to BMX courses and footpaths in must-win seats, the Coalition has announced $23.3 billion in projects since the budgets at eight election sweeteners a day. Labor's been left behind offering a modest $1.9 billion in almost 100 projects that include assistance to veterans, building a skate park and upgrading a pavilion at a community tennis club. Now, the Sydney Morning Herald has been tracking promises made by both parties since October. There's been a flurry of activity, particularly, of course, in marginal seats, which isn't surprising since Treasurer Josh Frydenberg handed down his fourth budget. That budget confirmed the country's third largest deficit at $80 billion this year after the two largest deficits over the previous two years. Gross debt is expected to reach a record $1.2 trillion by the year uh, 2025. The budget is not projected to get back into surplus this decade, at least. Now, in several seats, promises made by one side have been matched soon after by the other. 
in the knife-edge seat of Chisholm, Labor, on April 9, promised $2 million to upgrade a sporting Senate. Four days later, the Coalition pledged $3 million toward the same project. Look, Prime Minister Scott Morrison made the marginal New South Wales South Coast seat of Gilmore his first stop in the official election campaign to promise $40 million in local road upgrades, which were matched by the incumbent Labor MP. And so the spending goes on. Meanwhile... Federal Liberal candidate Catherine Deves says her family has left Sydney due to death threats received following her comments about transgender people. Deves, who opposes inclusion of trans women in women's sport, broke a silence in an interview with SBS News over the weekend where she detailed alleged death threats. She said she's had to involve the police and the Australian Federal Police. She said, and I quote, my safety has been threatened. My family are away out of Sydney because I don't want them to witness what I'm going through, uh, nor place them in any danger. Well, uh, just on that, Swimming Australia have issued a legal threat over the anti-trans campaign. I read over the weekend and I find that very interesting. Furious Swimming Australia officials have threatened legal action against conservative activist, uh, activist group Advance after it hijacked images of some of its biggest stars in a campaign against transgender sport inclusion. In a blitz against supposedly woke politicians, the group targeted independent member for Warringah's Ali Stegall with moving billboards proclaiming women's sport is not for men. Liberal candidate Catherine Deves, of course, is the hardliner on the issue and she wants transitioned athletes banned from female sport. Now, the billboard, which I've got a picture of here, featured images of Tokyo superstar Emma McKeon, four-time Olympic bass, a backstroker Emily Seabomb and swimming legend Dawn Fraser. All have questioned aspects of the complicated debate over the past week, but none have been consulted by this independence group called Advanced. Are they independent? Anyway, and Swimming Australia did not give consent for the use of their imagery, some of which was used to promote their athletes ahead of the Tokyo Olympic Games. Now, Swimming Australia boss Eugene Buckley issued a swift statement saying its lawyers had already demanded the billboards be shelved. Buckley confirmed that permission had not been sought from either Swimming Australia or its athletes and... Even if it had, it would have been quickly denied. Uh, Mr Buckley said over the weekend that Swimming Australia strongly condemns the use of imagery of our athletes, past and present, by the Advanced Australia Party in recent political advertising. Consent to use the imagery was never sought prior to its publication, neither from Swimming Australia nor the individuals involved. For clarity, if it was sought, it would have been categorically denied. He goes on, Swimming Australia does not endorse this or any message from the Advance Australia Party. Swimming Australia has issued a legal notice to the Advance Australia Party and expects the images to be removed from circulation immediately. Swimming Australia believes in a competitive environment that is inclusive, fair and equitable for all athletes at the same time, ultimately all Australians deserve to feel welcome, safe, valued and celebrated in swimming. Now, of course, both McKean and Seamon have contributed to the debate over the past week. 
both saying there needed to be fairness at the elite level when it comes to transgender athletes competing. Fraser, too, weighed in and suggested the creation of a separate category for transgender competitors. But none have any alignment to advance or conservative causes, and it's understood Fraser is livid in particular at the use of her likeness to back the cause. Seabomb, too, has sought to clarify her stance amid an election frenzy, saying she loved to share her sport and wanted to see trans people live their lives as they want. Now, of course, Emma, Emma McKeon was up for an award at the Laureus World Sports Awards last night, where she was nominated for World Sportswoman of the Year. She would be mortified by the use of her comments as a political talking point after they were picked up at a forum hosted by Griffith University where she trains on the Gold Coast. Swimming Australia continues to work on its own transgender policy, but has made it clear that it supports inclusion. Now, in late 2020, it partnered with Pride in Sport to increase LGBTQ participation in the sport. Now, much of the debate has been spurred by American swimmer Leah Thomas, a transitioned athlete who had success at the recent NCAA Championships, and UK cyclist Emily Bridges, who was barred from competing at the last moment when world cycling went back to the drawing board on its transgender guidelines. Yeah, welcome back. Now, you may recall last Friday, the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, was the latest politician involved in a, a bit of a, a, a blue between... Um, involving a member of the public. And a man's been charged after Barnaby was confronted in this roadside verbal attack. It happened on Friday um, on the New England Highway between Armidale and Tamworth. Now, an Australian Federal Police Task Force, with the help of New South Wales Police, arrested and charged a 52-year-old man following an investigation. The man was refused police bail and appeared in Tamworth local court after he was charged on Sunday with threatening to cause harm to a Commonwealth public official and failure to comply with bail conditions. Now, this bloke was arrested at his New South Wales home on Sunday by officers from the new specialised investigative task force Operation Wilmot which has been established to help ensure the security of high office holders and parliamentarians during the 2022 federal election. Are we aware of that? That there is a new specialised investigative task force called Operation Wilmot. Now, police allege the man verbally threatened an AFP officer and adopted a fighting stance during Friday's incident. Now, AFP Detective Acting Superintendent Jeremy Staunton said the arrest should send a strong message that the AFP and its partners were working tirelessly to identify and prosecute anyone who broke the law by harassing, menacing or threatening politicians or those who worked with them. 
the AFP supports political expression and freedom of speech. However, when it leads to disruption, harassment, intimidation, threatening behaviour and damage to property, it can reach the threshold of a criminal offence. Politicians, candidates and those who work with them should be able to do their jobs safely and we will not tolerate criminal behaviour. Now, politicians, candidates, of course, uh, and they're right, they should be able to do their job. And they shouldn't be harassed and threatened by anybody. Particularly, you know, if someone adopts a a fighting stance, for goodness sake. Anyway, Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, thanked police for their quick work in dealing with the matter. He said it was a sad and unsavoury incident, but we have important work to do as elected officials, and this incident in no way overshadows that. Once again, I thank my protective detail for their bravery in keeping myself and my staff safe, and I look forward to continuing our work on the campaign trail. Now, the task force works in close collaboration with the Australian Electoral Commission. Now, the man fronted court charged with threatening to cause harm to a Commonwealth public official. The maximum penalty for the offence is five years imprisonment if found guilty, and failure to comply with bail conditions, of course, of the New South Wales Bail Act. I'm not quite sure what this fellow was out on bail on. Anyway, uh, he probably regrets the uh, stance that he took. Uh, all very well to, you know, express your political opinion, but uh, there should there's just no room at all in our democratic process for violence and definitely not harassment of public officials to the extent that it's a criminal activity. It's not on. Marcus Paul in the morning. (laughs) All right, welcome back. Now, where do you stand on the issue of banning Russian athletes uh, in light of the invasion of Ukraine? That is banning tennis players from competing in tennis events, including Wimbledon. Wimbledon, of course, has decided to ban Russians and Belarusians because of uh, the invasion of the Ukraine. Now, the World Tennis Association president, Steve Simon, warned Wimbledon they face strong reactions to their decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players And the week ahead could see more twists in this controversy, which is split tennis. Now, personally, I think it's an overreach. Um, You know, uh, the the tennis players aren't decision makers at a political level. They are professional athletes travelling the world, obviously paid extremely well, but they entertain people. And I just think... um, to perhaps penalise them because of the actions of their political masters. And let's be honest, (laughs) Vladimir Putin and and others aren't democratically elected officials. They will do whatever the hell they... They're autocrats. Anyway, the All England Club said they had decided to bar the likes of Daniel Medvedev, Andrei Rublev... Aranya Sablenka and Victoria Azarenka in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Now, there's apparently going to be an annual Wimbledon event launch tomorrow where the saga will dominate the agenda. 
Meanwhile, Australian tennis and WTA officials are expected to meet on the sidelines of the Madrid Open from next week to discuss their response to the crisis. As the Grand Slam tournaments are autonomous, possible sanctions by the ATP and the WTA could include refusal to award ranking points at the uh, June 27 to July 10 Grand Slam tournament, that's Wimbledon, that could reduce Wimbledon to the status of a high-profile exhibition event. In other words, if it's not a part of the Grand Slam, then it may well just be a an exhibition tournament. Anyway, the ATP does not seem inclined to take legal action, while according to French daily L'Equipe, which obtained an email sent by the World Tennis Authority to its players, the body is studying the actions that you, the players, could take according to the Grand Slam regulations. I do think that you'll see some strong reactions that will come from us, but what those are and how far they'll go is yet to be determined. That's according to the World Tennis Authority. Uh, Anyway, they don't have the same jurisdiction over the Grand Slams as they do over their own sanctioned events, but um, there are three potential avenues of action. According to lawyers in sports law, they lie in discrimination based on nationality and attack on the freedom to work and the rights to equal treatment. Um, Anyway, what do you make of it? I just don't believe that it's the right course of action to take. And, you know, Wimbledon does also face a charge of double standards. They excluded German and Japanese players for several years after World War II, while South African players were allowed to play during the era uh, era of apartheid. So, I mean, that's double standards, isn't it? I just think it's wrong. I really think it's wrong. Uh, what do you say? You can flick me an email with your point of view. Marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au or simply comment on our Facebook page. Okay, nice to have you company on this Tuesday. There's little doubt that streaming is massive, whether it's Netflix, Stan... Disney, whatever it is uh, that you choose to stream in the privacy of your own home, on your smartphone, smart device, um, it really has turned the world of television entertainment upside down. Uh, The commercial television networks obviously have been losing and bleeding audience share for a number of years now. But Netflix are in a bit of trouble. They are already making moves after the distressing news that they'd lost some 200,000 subscribers in the first three months of this year, resulting in a stock price plunge which wiped, you ready for it, $54 billion off its market value. While the streaming company flagged it would introduce a cheaper ad-supported subscription option and crack down on the common practice of password sharing, executives also hinted that it would be cutting back on content spend. And that's a shame, because a lot of Netflix's content is very good. Uh, Just on the issue of password sharing, I have done it, naughty me. Uh, I have my own account now, but initially, and I know plenty of people that have done it. 
Weren't Netflix supposed to be cracking down on that years ago, or a couple of years ago? Anyway, the first casualty of that cost-cutting appears to be its animation slate, with The Wrap reporting Netflix has ousted the head of its animation department, and with him, several staff members and in-production projects. The most anticipated of the cancelled titles is one called Bone, which is an adaptation of Jeff Smith's beloved Quest comic series. There have been attempts to adapt Bone to either TV or film since the late 1990s, with the Netflix version confirmed back in 2019. Now, there'd been no updates on the project until it was cancelled this month, which is a shame. There are at least two other animated adaptions in the works at Netflix. Both are based off the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and are all in collaboration with New Zealand filmmakers. Uh, let's hope they continue. Um, oh, look, I don't know. In recent years, as its original slate has grown, Netflix... Jimplex. Netflix... Jimplex. ...is often quick to cancel shows, with few making it past their third season. The reasons are often obscure, albeit some decisions were attributed to the higher cost of COVID protocols during production. Shows such as Tuka and Bertie, One Day at a Time, Glow, Sense8, Lady Dynamite, The Babysitter's Club... I am not okay with this and others were all acts despite a passionate fan base. Did you watch any of those shows? Were you disappointed when they were canned? Even high-profile projects such as the Idris Elba film Turn Up Charlie or anime adaption Cowboy Bebop, they were cult after one season rather than being given another run, which is a, a shame. Some beloved and long-running shows on broadcast television such as Parks and Recreation and Seinfeld had rocky starts, either creatively or ratings-wise, and only found their groove a little later on. Anyway, Netflix apparently is in dire straits after the company reported a loss of subscribers for the first two uh, in ten years. Um, the news led to a huge drop in its share price, as I mentioned, wiping nearly $60 billion off its share value. It's a shame. It's a shame. It has some people wondering if the golden era of streaming is over, as the largest player, Netflix, struggles to find new customers in a mature market. Well, what do you make of all of that? I mean, I certainly enjoy Netflix. But I enjoy the others as well. Maybe there's just a glut of them on the market at the moment. And people are cancelling one subscription as they take up the other rather than keeping them all. I'd love to get your thoughts. Marcus Paul in the morning. Chuck a movie on with Jim Flix. Netflix. Okay, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Just a, a little more on streaming services as... I mentioned before, Netflix, well, they're in a, a world of bother, uh, nearly $60 billion written off their price on the stock exchange after 200-odd thousand people in the first couple of months of this year gave them the flick. Netflix. I, uh, I watched a, a really good Netflix uh, documentary over the weekend, the Abercrombie Fitch Netflix documentary. It's called White Hot. 
Uh, did you watch it? Have you seen it yet? If you haven't, I, I suggest you do. The Titan of American Preppy is the subject of this scandalous new documentary. And it, it look, it's really good. It kind of outlines how fashion can be cruel. It's supposed to make us feel better, but it so often makes us feel worse. It's exclusionary tactics, leaving us feeling on the, you know, the wrong, either the wrong age, the wrong size, the wrong shape, the wrong race, or ugly. You know, if you were ugly, there's no way in the world you would have got a gig working in retail at Abercrombie and Fitch. Anyway, plenty of people have been enthralled by uh, this documentary and also enraged by it. It's called White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. It reveals shocking revelations about the systemic racism, sexism and sexual abuse allegations that ran rife through the company as children back in the day blithely packed their shopping baskets with its clothes. In 2002, it was forced to withdraw T-shirts depicting racist slogans such as Two Wongs Can't Make a White. And then in 2003, it faced a class action racial discrimination lawsuit alleging that it turned down minorities for sales positions. Anyway, on it goes. I don't want to give too much away, but check it out. It is on Netflix. It's called White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. All right, speaking of streaming, um, I've been telling you about this uh, sponsor of ours for the last couple of weeks, Oak, all the W's dot O-E-C-K dot com, a next gen VPN providing you private and secure internet access. I want you to check them out because they automatically enable the unblocking of streaming services, the most advanced streaming VPN on the market. Their revolutionary residential IP smart routing is built into the Oak network. It's O-E-C-K. You can simply connect to the VPN region closest to you, and you can then access your favourite movies and television shows from over 30 regions across the world. On top of that, all the W's.OECK.com, that's Oak, can also provide you with private and secure internet access. They secure your privacy to and from your device using industry-leading encryption standards on servers and routers that they own. Their zero hard drive system also will not store any of your data or usage activity ever. And also importantly, with Oak, you can keep your family safe. Get powerful device-level filtering to help prevent dangerous content reaching your family and devices. Oak's unique online guardian Cerebus is the must-have feature for families and individuals. You can choose which content to block and prevent threats before they actually occur. You can quickly block dangerous sites and services at the DNS level to help prevent ads, malware, phishing sites, and much, much more. So where do you go to be involved in all of this? Go to allthews.oak.com. That's www.oeck.com. A next-gen VPN providing you private and secure internet access. Of course, 
all of their services have a money-back guarantee. You'll get private and secure internet access where you can keep the family safe as well and also unlock streaming services from around 30 regions right across the world. One more time, all the W's.OECK.com. Streaming services. Well, this might not be good news for those with a mortgage, but we are being warned there's a chance that the Reserve Bank of Australia could very well raise interest rates as soon as next week. Experts are warning that the first rate rise will be bigger than anticipated and will most likely be followed by another one straight away. Many economists had already earmarked June as the logical time when the cash rate would rise, but with the election looming, some have brought forward their estimate to May. Now, the RBA will next meet to discuss rates in a week from today, next Tuesday. It's now a very close call as to whether the first hike will be in May or June, according to chief economists. It is currently less than four weeks away, of course, until the election on May the 21st. And experts say that although the Reserve Bank of Australia would prefer not to lift the rates until the election was over, rampant inflation may well force their hand. Now, tomorrow, Australia's central bank will release inflation data for the March quarter, which will likely put further pressure on the reserve to start raising rates. It is because business surveys and numerous anecdotes of price rises point to another surge in inflation during the March quarter. The Consumer Price Index is also expected to be up 1.7% compared to the last quarter. That's a level way above what the Reserve Bank had hoped for at 0.7 or 0.8%. Now, that means the likely further blowout in Australian inflation will mean that our country is now starting to face the same risk as in various other countries, that inflation expectations will get out of control, which means higher than target inflation, making it harder to get it back down again. Now, if such uh, inflation rises occur, there will be a strong case for the Reserve Bank to hike the rates next month. Now, were it to happen, it wouldn't be the first time the rates have risen right before an election. We go back to 2007, around two weeks before Labor's Kevin Rudd won the federal election, the Reserve Bank of Australia hiked rates amid mounting pressure from a resources boom and large government spending sprees. Interest rates in Australia reached an all-time high of 17.5% in January 1990. Since then, of course, they have averaged at just shy of 4%. The last time the RBA hiked up rates was back in 2010, 12 years ago. The official cash rate has been at a record low of 0.1% since November 2020 in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but it is largely expected to jump by 1% by the end of this year and hit 1.25% next year. However, now one of Westpac's economists has revised those figures and thinks it perhaps will be double that amount. We'll see what happens. They expect the RBA to bump up the official cash rate from its current 0.1% to 0.5% after confirming the worst state of inflation in the country. Well, I don't know. Let's hope 
that these rate rises, which are inevitable, there's no doubt about that, let's hope they come slowly. And I also hope that they don't put too much pressure on those with a mortgage. Okay, well, most people returning back to work today, uh, well, most, um, and the rest of the country, I think, probably later this week or certainly next week with kids getting back to school, most on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. What about the weather then? Let's have a look. Sydney today, showers expected and a top of 23 degrees. More showers tomorrow, 23. Newcastle, a shower or two and a top of 24. Uh, let's go north to Brisbane, a shower or two there for Bris Vegas and 24 degrees today. Uh, up in the tropics, Townsville, rain at times and 28. Cairns, rain as well, 29 degrees. Mostly sunny and fine though for Darwin and a hot 34 degrees. For the nation's capital, Canberra, a top of 19 degrees, partly cloudy, mostly dry today. For the Illawarra, Wollongong, a shower or two and a top of 21 degrees there. For Hobart, partly cloudy and 19 degrees. Melbourne, 23 and partly cloudy today. For Adelaide, some morning showers, but they will clear to a partly cloudy afternoon with 21 degrees. And for Perth today, showers and a top of 21 I hope it's a good day wherever you are. All right, let's look at some of the headlines, some of the stories we've been following today on the program. And, of course, we now have, certainly, Anzac Day out of the way and the Easter period out of the way. So all the holidays, if you like, are are now behind us. So that means the election campaign will charge up a notch from today. We've got less than two weeks until pre-polls begin That's right, less than two weeks. And the parties need to have runs on the board before then. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has done a fairly good job of defining his opponents over the past three years, but some say he still has done little to define himself or what he stands for. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, on the other hand, has his own battles to convince voters why the coalition should be given a fourth term in government all while keeping his own policy covered largely bare at this stage. Primary votes for both major parties remain on the low side, with neither leader soaring in the popularity stakes. And we must remember there is still a large cohort of undecided voters, and it is they who will determine the outcome of this federal election. Not much happened really yesterday, being Anzac Day. Both the Prime Minister and Labor's Deputy Richard Miles attended a dawn service and parade in Darwin. They kept politics mostly out of it and just discussed the hot weather. Peter Dutton, though, uh, he certainly didn't leave politics out of Anzac Day yesterday. He made the extraordinary claim that Australians should, quote, prepare for war. And you can listen to my comments earlier in the program on that back on the podcast. Catherine Deves' family has been forced out of Sydney after the Liberal hopeful received death threats for her comments about transgender people. Meanwhile, Swimming Australia had the Advanced Australia Party in their legal sites after using the images of Dawn Fraser and Emily Seabom and Emma McEwen on their billboards uh, in the fight against transgender athletes. 
So we'll watch that space. Absolutely we will. Would-be Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's success, I'm told, will depend on the Senate's. And there's been some predictions that it will be decided by one seat in the Senate. And there were discussions about that over the weekend. But look, I think that's all a little premature at the moment. Meanwhile, this was interesting. Australia could create more than 60,000 jobs by replacing the energy produced by a single coal-fired power station with solar. Well, I think that's a great idea. Why don't we start that tomorrow? Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, well, that's it for today's program. Just uh, loosening things up and uh, wiping off the cobwebs after um, a few days off. And we are back. And the election campaign is back in earnest as well. We'll keep an eye on things over today. And if you missed anything that we discussed in our news bites this morning on the program, you can listen back to the Prawncast, the podcast. It'll be up on your favourite podcasting platform a little later today. Meantime, if you want to make contact with me, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au to have you say on any of the issues that I mentioned. Or, of course, you can... As most of you prefer, comment on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning on Facebook. Please give us a share and a like. And if you're catching up on the Prawncast, you're listening to it. Also, if you don't mind, share that on your socials as well. We'll be back tomorrow morning on starterfm.com.au and, of course, on iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. 7 till 9 Australian Eastern Standard Time. That's tomorrow. Until then, have a wonderful day. Stay safe and we'll catch you soon. Streaming services.